341, Chapter 16, Book Talk begins at 7 minutes and 11 seconds. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 341, Sunrise, Sunset. This episode brought to you by Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter delivered to your mailbox, bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And March Hare Yarns, hand-dyed yarn just for you. You can visit the March Hare at Etsy. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. Links to all of our sponsors' pages can be found in the show notes at craftlit.com. Remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go take a look. Well, hello. Yes. Yes, it is true. My children are growing up. I drove this morning to Dulles Airport, my least favorite airport in the continental United States, and took my son to fly by himself to go spend a week with his grandparents. Uh, Those of you who've been around for a while may recall that my older son, when he was nine, I think, got to go on a trip with his grandparents to the Galapagos. His grandfather is a nature photographer, and so he got to go down to the Galapagos and (laughs) go nose to nose with all sorts of amazing creatures. And he did, in fact, meet Lonesome George, who passed away uh, just a couple years ago, I think, the the last of the Galapagos tortoises. So he had this big adventure. And so his grandparents were trying to figure out what to do with thing two. And they decided that getting to go to all of the parks that they could cram in uh, down in Southern California would be great. And the boy is going to swim with a beluga whale. Now, first off, my kid is a fish. (laughs) He loves to be in the water. But second off, oh my gosh, I am never going to stop hearing about how cool it is to swim with beluga whales. But there he was. He was going off on his own on an airplane, flying by himself. And uh, he was so excited. It was literally as they took him down the jetway, because you can't get on the jetway. uh, You're allowed to walk your child up up to the door, but not past it. And he turned around and said, love you, mom, bye, and took off with the flight attendant, and that was it. So, so it was a big day, but it was also a big four hours start to finish, actually closer to five, because you have to go extra early, go through a whole bunch of paperwork extra early, and then you go through, I don't even know how many hoops to get all the right documentation and make sure that the information is correct for the other side and and one thing after another, which I'm not complaining, is what you want. But the upshot is that from the door to the gate, it was probably three full hours. When we walked up, first class was lining up 
and starting almost, they'd almost called first class to go in. And then they have the parent hang around. They say to stay right there at the gate until the plane starts to taxi away. And then you can go back to the front of the airport, especially at Dulles, which it's 400 million miles from where you embark to where your car is. And don't get me started. So I went all the way back to the entry and that took 45 minutes. And then before you leave the building, you're supposed to check and make sure that the plane actually did get in the air and is underway. Because if something happens, like they're on the lineup to take off and everything is looking great. And then all of a sudden the air conditioning goes out, they have to taxi back to the jetway. And one would not want one's child to be sitting there freaking out as they put everybody on another plane or anything like that. So, so that was my morning. If you have never done this before, I just wanted to let you know, it actually works pretty seamlessly. And certainly the people at the airport are perfectly aware of what the routine is, even if you aren't. And, uh, and for those of you who have done it, was my experience pretty normal? Was it outrageously long or crazy or complicated? It seemed okay, except for the fact that it was Dulles Airport. But we went to Dulles because that way he could get a uh, nonstop, which obviously way better for a little 10-year-old boy flying by himself. And of course, this is all in the middle of the moving season. <laughs> I don't know where my knitting is right now, which is a little scary. All of my zentangling stuff, my pens, my paper, everything, everything is in a box, which sounds great, right? Because that's where you want it to be when you're about to move. But the problem is that what that means is that all I have left to pack is the basement. And that, that my friends, is not a fun thing to look forward to. So I'm, I'm a little nervous about all that, but, but there it is. The other thing I wanted to let you know is I am going to, because of the move situation, I am going to have to pre-record a few episodes. So forgive me, please, if you email me with comments or information or things to share of the crafty variety, I will not be able to get them in time for uh, the rest of the month of April. But things will pick up and be a little bit more normal during May, and then it'll all fall apart again at the end of June. So it's going to be an interesting couple of months. Still planning to go to Maryland Sheep and Wool. I did find a link to the Cooperative Press booth location, which I now can't remember, but I did put it in the show notes last week and I'll have it in the show notes again for this week. And I think I think I have a couple of upcoming podcast interviews. Oh, I talked to Tap Girl. I did an interview with her uh, a couple weeks ago, but I have another uh, Women in Business thing that's coming up. So I'll, I'll let you know when I have links to any of that. And on that note, I think we should get to North and South. So today's chapter is chapter 16, and it is titled The Shadow of Death. And you may remember that Margaret had asked for a recommendation for a doctor. And, uh, and this chapter, we will see the doctor. And one of the things that really struck me in this week's chapter is how much internal monologue there is in uh, throughout the chapter it begins with it and it ends with it and i was trying to figure out is is that why it's striking me as such a a new thing different from from the other chapters and i i don't know i didn't i didn't go back and reread everything because time but i did 
get the feeling that the impact of beginning and ending with two different characters uh, kind of mulling over their own reactions to Margaret, that this this point in the book is a pretty good time to have that happen. It gives us a little bit more insight into how everybody else is seeing Margaret and it gives a, a chance to, uh, to Gaskell to telegraph us some, some very specific information uh, about her. But also, of course, by doing that, information about these other people who are talking as well. And it's, it's been interesting as I've been reading more and more about the, the book. One of the things that keeps coming up is people talking about uh, Margaret as being a, a proto-feminist, that she is uh, clearly a strong-willed young woman and, and, you know, written by a strong-willed woman as well. But for all of that almost pig-headedness that we see uh, coming out of Margaret from time to time, she is almost always working within the constructs of what is expected of a young lady in Victorian England. And that, I think, is a really fascinating thing. Because if we if we look at this in a more uh, modern context, or make make a more modern illusion, if you look at the cast on Mad Men, back in the, the very first seasons of the show. I think in some ways we'd be tempted to say that uh, Peggy, the young, the young woman who rises through the ranks to become uh, a, a writer within the, the company, it's kind of easy to look at her and go, oh, well, then she would be uh, the Margaret Hale. She would be the, the proto-feminist. She would be the one who's out there taking the risks and out there uh, pushing against the glass ceiling and, and finding her way up. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no, actually, uh, while I, I think that there's a valid argument to be made there, I I actually think I would go with Joan, the character that's played so perfectly by Christina Hendricks, who is the the fabulous, soft, and round redhead. I I. I can't help but think that the the person that Margaret most clo- closely would align with is this character of Joan, who was a perfect representative of her time. And her time really was the, the 50s. And we come into the story as everything is transitioning into the 60s, and everything about Joan is about to fall by the wayside, similarly to how everything from Victorian and Edwardian uh, women... Uh, expectations, fashion, all of that gets blown out of the water by the advent of the 20s and the flappers. There's this huge sea change that's very generational. And it's very easy to look back at the women with the beehive hairdos and the pencil skirts, or the women with the corsets when you're a flapper, and kind of scorn them and uh, disallow them from having their triumphs because those triumphs were going to be different, and in some cases, and in some ways, smaller. But triumphs, nonetheless. I mean, the fact that Joan was able to actually make a career for herself as a woman in the 50s was pretty impressive. And of course, she's only continued to be fabulous as the television show for Mad Men has gone on. And Peggy continues to be fabulous Peggy, and we all love her. And she is, of course, blazing trails of her own in a very different kind of career path where she's actually allowed to be creative, but she's had to fight tooth and nail for that too. It's just a very different kind of fight from what Joan had to do. Joan 
had to be more subtle about it. She had to work within this very narrow feminine construct of what was expected behavior-wise. But the only way she was ever going to be successful was to play that system and play it well, to win at that game. It's not her fault. The rules were changed on her in the middle of her climb. And so, so Margaret becomes this very interesting character because she is pushing at the boundaries. She is stretching the limits. She is finding ways to be more, stronger, better, all of those things, which doesn't mean she doesn't have uh, meltdowns. It doesn't mean that she doesn't fall apart from time to time. And I think more importantly, it certainly doesn't mean that she doesn't make mistakes. Now, one of the things that I remember noticing when I read other kind of comedies of, not comedies of manners, because those are usually satires and their, their point is part of the humor, but those kind of sweet books about uh, mannered girls who have tea parties and uh, it's all the all the books that Jane Austen makes fun of uh, when silly girls are reading silly books. It's those kinds of books that I'm I'm thinking of that in those books, when there's a girl like Margaret, she gets punished. You know, any anybody who goes outside of a very narrowly defined world of gentility and uh, and starts to work at all outside of the, the family home, that's crossing a line. And Margaret's not going off to work in the factory or anything, but she is having more and more of a life out in Milton. And all of it's because of, of Bessie, but it's also because she was the one who had to set up the house and get all the stuff there and you know figure out how to pack up a house that they'd been in for the last 30 or 40 years. And in, in these other books, these, these other more kind of quote unquote traditional books, Margaret would probably be punished for that. In fact, she, even in a Dickens book, it's very possible that a character like her would be punished for that. I, I'm thinking notably of Madame Defarge. Uh, she is a tough cookie. She's a businesswoman. She runs the wine shop and her husband while she knits, <laughs> which is great. And, and, leads to marvelous knitting pattern books. She is outside of the world of what a woman is quote unquote supposed to be, and she gets punished for it. So as you can tell, I've been thinking a lot about Margaret this week and about how she is fitting into her Victorian world, trying very hard not to judge from our standards, but to really take a look at where she would have been in that world. And I I keep wondering, you know, how did mothers of daughters view this book? Was this the kind of book that you'd slip to your daughter when she turns 14 so you can kind of get her thinking about how you don't have to be milk toast, you don't have to spend your days like a wet noodle. You can you can go and do stuff and be of value, be of and of course for Margaret and for Elizabeth Gaskell, being of service was appropriate and desirable. So there's that as well. But there's a lot of information we're going to learn in today's chapter. So I am going to let you get to it. And then we will, uh, we will move on from there. All right. Have fun listening to chapter 16 of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. Chapter 16. The Shadow of Death. Trust in that veiled hand which leads none by the path that he would go, 
and always be for change prepared, for the world's law is ebb and flow. From the Arabic The next afternoon, Dr. Donaldson came to pay his first visit to Mrs. Hale. The mystery that Margaret hoped their late habits of intimacy had broken through was resumed. She was excluded from the room while Dixon was admitted. Margaret was not a ready lover, but where she loved, she loved passionately and with no small degree of jealousy. She went into her mother's bedroom, just behind the drawing room, and paced it up and down while awaiting the doctors coming out. Every now and then, she stopped to listen. She fancied she heard a moan. She clenched her hands tight and held her breath. She was sure she heard a moan. Then all was still for a few minutes more, and then there was the moving of chairs, the raised voices, all the little disturbances of leave-taking. When she heard the door open, she went quickly out of the bedroom. My father is from home, Dr. Donaldson. He has to attend a pupil at this hour. May I trouble you to come into his room downstairs? She saw and triumphed over all the obstacles which Dixon threw in her way, assuming her rightful position as daughter of the house in something of the spirit of the elder brother, which quelled the old servant's officiousness very effectually. Margaret's conscious assumption of this unusual dignity of demeanor towards Dixon gave her an instant's amusement in the midst of her anxiety. She knew, from the surprised expression on Dixon's face, how ridiculously grand she herself must be looking, and the idea carried her downstairs into the room. It gave her that length of oblivion from the keen sharpness of the recollection of the actual business in hand. Now that came back and seemed to take away her breath. It was a moment or two before she could utter a word, but she spoke with an air of command as she asked, What is the matter with Mamma? You will oblige me by telling the simple truth. Then, seeing a slight hesitation on the doctor's part, she added, I am the only child she has, here, I mean. My father is not sufficiently alarmed, I fear, and, therefore, if there is any serious apprehension, it must be broken to him gently. I can do this. I can nurse my mother. Pray, speak, sir. To see your face and not be able to read it gives me worse dread than I trust any words of yours will justify. My dear young lady, your mother seems to have a most attentive and efficient servant who is more like a friend. I am her daughter, sir. But when I tell you she expressly desired that you might not be told, I am not good or patient enough to submit to the prohibition. Besides, I am sure you are too wise, too experienced to have promised to keep the secret. Well, said he, half smiling, though sadly enough, there you are right. I did not promise. In fact, I fear the secret will be known soon enough without my revealing it. He paused. Margaret went very white and compressed her lips a little more. Otherwise, not a feature moved. 
with the quick insight into character without which no medical man can rise to the eminence of Dr. Donaldson, he saw that she would exact the full truth, that she would know if one iota was withheld, and that the withholding would be torture more acute than the knowledge of it. He spoke two short sentences in a low voice, watching her all the time, for the pupils of her eyes dilated into a black horror, and the whiteness of her complexion became livid. He ceased speaking. He waited for that look to go off, for her gasping breath to come. Then she said, I thank you most truly, sir, for your confidence. That dread has haunted me for many weeks. It is a true, real agony. My poor, poor mother! Her lips began to quiver, and he let her have the relief of tears, sure of her power of self-control to check them. A few tears, those were all she shed, before she recollected the many questions she longed to ask. Will there be much suffering? He shook his head. That we cannot tell. It depends on constitution, on a thousand things. But the late discoveries of medical science have given us large power of alleviation. My father, said Margaret, trembling all over. I do not know, Mr. Ale. I mean, it is difficult to give advice, but I should say. Bear on with the knowledge you have forced me to give you so abruptly to the fact which I could not withhold has become in some degree familiar to you, so that you may, without too great an effort, be able to give what comfort you can to your father. Before then, my visits, which, of course, I shall repeat from time to time, although I fear I can do nothing but alleviate, a thousand little circumstances will have occurred to awaken his alarm, to deepen it, so that he will be all the better prepared. Nay, my dear young lady, nay, my dear, I saw Mr. Thornton, and I honor your father for the sacrifice he has made, however mistaken I may believe him to be. Well, this once, if it will please you, my dear, only remember when I come again, I come as a friend, and you must learn to look upon me as such, because seeing each other, getting to know each other at such times as these, is worth years of morning calls. Margaret could not speak for crying, but she wrung his hand at parting. That's what I call a fine gal, thought Dr. Donaldson, when he was seated in his carriage and had time to examine his ringed hand, which had suffered slightly from her pressure. Who would have thought that little hand could have given such a squeeze? But the bones were well put together, and that gives immense power. What a queen she is, with her head thrown back at first to force me into speaking the truth, and then bent so eagerly forward to listen. Poor thing. I must see she does not overstrain herself, though it's astonishing how much these thoroughbred creatures can do and suffer. That girl's game to the backbone. Another who had gone that deadly color could never have come round without either fainting or hysterics. But she wouldn't do either, not she. And the force of her will brought her round. Such a girl as that would win my heart if I were thirty years younger. 
too late now. Ah, here we are at the arches. So out he jumped with thought, wisdom, experience, sympathy, and ready to attend to the calls made upon them by this family, just as if there were none other in the world. Meanwhile, Margaret had returned into her father's study for a moment to recover strength before going upstairs into her mother's presence. Oh, my God, my God, but this is terrible. How shall I bear it? Such a deadly disease. No hope. Oh, Mama, Mama. I wish I had never gone to Aunt Shaw's and been all those precious years away from you. Poor Mama. How much she must have borne. Oh, I pray thee, my God, that her sufferings may not be too acute, too dreadful. How shall I bear to see them? How shall I bear Papa's agony? He must not be told yet, not all at once. It would kill him. But I won't lose another moment of my own dear precious mother. She ran upstairs. Dixon was not in the room. Mrs. Hale lay back in an easy chair with a soft white shawl wrapped around her and a becoming cap put on in expectation of the doctor's visit. Her face had a little faint color in it, and the very exhaustion after the examination gave it a peaceful look. Margaret was surprised to see her look so calm. Why, Margaret, how strange you look. What is the matter? And then, as the idea stole into her mind of what was indeed the real state of the case, she added, as if a little displeased, You have not been seeing Dr. Donaldson and asking him any questions, have you, child? Margaret did not reply, only looked wistfully towards her. Mrs. Hale became more displeased. He would not surely break his word to me and... Oh, yes, Mamma, he did. I made him. It was I. Blame me. She knelt down by her mother's side and caught her hand. She would not let it go, though Mrs. Hale tried to pull it away. She kept kissing it, and the hot tears she shed bathed it. Margaret, it was very wrong of you. You knew I did not wish you to know. But, as if tired with the contest, she left her hand in Margaret's clasp, and, by and by, she returned the pressure faintly. That encouraged Margaret to speak. Oh, Mamma, let me be your nurse. I will learn anything Dixon can teach me. But, you know, I am your child, and I do think I have a right to do everything for you. You don't know what you are asking, said Mrs. Hale with a shudder. Yes, I do. I know a great deal more than you are aware of. Let me be your nurse. Let me try at any rate. No one has ever, shall ever try so hard as I will do. It will be such a comfort, Mamma. My poor child. Well, you shall try. Do you know, Margaret, Dixon and I thought you would quite shrink from me if you knew. Dixon thought, said Margaret, her lip curling. Dixon could not give me credit for enough true love for as much as herself— she thought, I suppose, that I was one of those poor sickly women who like to lie on rose leaves and be fanned all day. 
Don't let Dixon's fancies come any more between you and me, Mamma. Don't, please, implored she. Don't be angry with Dixon, said Mrs. Hale anxiously. Margaret recovered herself. No, I won't. I will try and be humble and learn her ways, if you will only let me do all I can for you. Let me be in the first place, Mother. I am greedy of that. I used to fancy you would forget me while I was away at Aunt Shaw's and cry myself to sleep at nights with that notion in my head. And I used to think, how will poor Margaret bear our makeshift poverty after the thorough comfort and luxury in Harley Street till I have, many a time, been more ashamed of your seeing our contrivances at Helston than of any stranger finding them out. Oh, Mamma, and I did so enjoy them. They were so much more amusing than all the jog-trot Harley Street ways. The wardrobe shelf with handles that served as a supper tray on grand occasions, and the old tea chest stuffed and covered for ottomans. I think what you call the makeshift contrivances at dear Helston were a charming part of the life there. I shall never see Helston again, Margaret, said Mrs. Hale, the tears welling up into her eyes. Margaret could not reply. Mrs. Hale went on. While I was there, I was forever wanting to leave it. Every place seemed pleasanter. And now I shall die far away from it. I am rightly punished. You must not talk so, said Margaret impatiently. He said you might live for years. Oh, mother, we will have you back at Helston yet. No, never. That I must take as a just penance. But, Margaret, Frederick! At the mention of that one word, she suddenly cried out loud as in some sharp agony. It seemed as if the thought of him upset all her composure, destroyed the calm, overcame the exhaustion. Wild, passionate cries succeeded to cry. Frederick! Frederick, come to me! I am dying, little firstborn child. Come to me once again. She was in violent hysterics. Margaret went and called Dixon in terror. Dixon came in a huff and accused Margaret of having overexcited her mother. Margaret bore all meekly, only trusting that her father might not return. In spite of her alarm, which was even greater than the occasion warranted, she obeyed all Dixon's directions promptly and well without a word of self-justification. By so doing, she mollified her accuser. They put her mother to bed, and Margaret sat by her till she fell asleep, and afterwards till Dixon beckoned her out of the room, and, with a sour face, as if doing something against the grain, she bade her drink a cup of coffee which she had prepared for her in the drawing-room and stood over her in a commanding attitude as she did so. You shouldn't have been so curious, miss, and then you wouldn't have needed to fret before your time. It would have come soon enough, and now, I suppose, you tell master, and a pretty household I shall have a you. No, Dixon, said Margaret sorrowfully. I will not tell papa. He could not bear it as I can.
and by way of proving how well she bore it, she burst into tears. I, I knew how it would be. Now you're waking your mamma, just after she's gone to sleep so quietly. Miss Margaret, my dear, I've had to keep it down this many a week, and though I don't pretend I can love her as you do, yet I loved her better than any other man, woman, or child. No one but Master Frederick ever came near her in my mind. Ever since Lady Beresford's maid first took me in to see her dressed out in white crepe and corn ears and scarlet poppies, and I ran a needle down into my finger and broke it in, and she tore up her worked pocket handkerchief after they'd cut it out and came in to wet the bandages again with lotion when she returned from the ball, where she'd been the prettiest young lady of all. I've never loved anyone like her. I little thought then that I should live to see her brought so low. I don't mean no reproach to nobody. Many a one calls you pretty and handsome and what not. Even in this smoky place, enough to blind one's eyes, the owls can see that. But you'll never be like your mother for beauty. Never. Not if you live to be a hundred. Mama is very pretty still. Poor Mama. Now, don't you set off again, or I shall give way at last, whimpering. You never stand masters coming home and questioning at this rate. Go out and take a walk and come in something like. Many's the time I've longed to walk it off, the thought of what was the matter with her and how it all must end. Oh, Dixon, said Margaret. How often I've been cross with you, not knowing what a terrible secret you had to bear. Bless you, child. I like to see you showing a bit of spirit. It's the good old Beresford blood. Why, the last Sir John but two shot his steward down, there where he stood for just telling him that he'd racked the tenants, and he'd racked the tenants till he could get no more money off them than he could get skin off a flint. Well, Dixon... I won't shoot you, and I'll try not to be cross again. You never have. If I've said it at times, it has always been to myself just in private by way of making a little agreeable conversation, for there's no one here fit to talk to. And when you fire up, you're the very image of Master Frederick. I could find it in my heart to put you in a passion any day just to see his stormy look coming like a great cloud over your face. But now you go out, miss. I'll watch over missus. And as for master, his books are company enough for him if he should come in. I will go, said Margaret. She hung about Dixon for a minute or so, as if afraid and irresolute. Then, suddenly kissing her, she went quickly out of the room. Bless her, said Dixon. She's as sweet as a nut. There are three people I love. It's missus. Master Frederick and er, uh, just them three, that's all. The rest be hanged, for I don't know what they're in the world for. Master was born, I suppose, for to marry Mrs. If I thought he loved her properly, I might get to love him in time. But he should have made a deal more on her, and not always been reading, reading, thinking, thinking. See what it has brought him to. Many a one who never reads nor thinks either gets to be rector and dean and what not. And I dare say, Master might 
if he'd just minded missus and let the weary reading and thinking alone. There she goes, looking out of the window as she heard the front door shut. Poor young lady. Her clothes look shabby to what they did when she came to Elston a year ago. Then she hadn't so much as a darn stocking or a clean pair of gloves in all her wardrobe. And now... So, Dixon, Dixon who never says out loud to Margaret how much she loves her and only says, you know, there's only two people I love in the world, your mom and Frederick. (laughs) And she says it to Margaret's face. It's like, wow, well, thank you. But it's obvious that Margaret already knows that. So that's not a surprise. What would be a surprise is if she could hear what Dixon said in her own mind. And going back to uh, to the doctor at the beginning of the chapter, I, I he didn't start with the interior monologue about Margaret, but they had that scene at the beginning, and, and a very important one because Margaret asks for the news. She's ready for the news. She wants to hear the news. Here's the news. Burst into tears. But that doesn't mean she's weak. It just means she's human. And the doctor is the one to put that into perspective for us. You know, if, and I loved the line, if uh, uh, any other woman who would turn the color she turned when I told her the news would have fainted, but not her. She rallied, she pulled it together. And then that marvelous, that marvelous comment about her uh, squeezing his, <laughs> squeezing his hand so hard that his, the, his hand that had rings on it was going to be sore for a while. Because of course, when you pinch against somebody's ring, that is an owie. I I loved that description and it made me think of the age of innocence because there was that comment that he that the doctor makes about um her her bones Margaret's hand or her bones being well put together and I was thinking about Mrs. Manson Mingott in Age of Innocence when uh May comes over she she looks at the the engagement ring and she makes crack about May's uh, well uh, about how May's tennis playing spreads the joint but that the, the bone structure, the underneath it all, was good. And I thought, this is so interesting. I wonder if this is, is this connected with phrenology? Is it that, that kind of bone obsession that we're dealing with here? Or is it the uh, corset thing that you need to have a relatively decent bone structure to be able to stand up over time in a corset? I'm not sure exactly what the the obsession is. So if you know anything about this, I, I tried to research this under every possible turning I could come up with, and I, I couldn't find anything. But I did find out a little bit about Dixon's line, uh, that the, the person that she was talking about was so horrible that they'd get uh, skin off a flint. And this idea of a skin flint, someone who is uh, overly miserly, being a miser is bad enough, but being a skinflint is being overly miserly. Uh, this goes back at least to the 1700s. Some people attribute it to a Scottish saying. I don't know if that's true. It kind of looked apocryphal, but I've been trying to figure out what getting the skin off a of flint is because a lot of people seem to misunderstand this. They're talking about peeling the skin off a of flint. And if you're talking about like a flint and steel, I don't get that. The one thing I could understand would be if you if you skin a flint, it's like um, 
uh, uh, skinning a carrot, you know, that you're taking shavings off of it. And if you if you saved all of the the shavings off a of flint, all of the little tiny pieces that you knock away, and then tried to light a fire with those, that would be a foolish. B it would make kind of sense about skinning a flint, and it would be kind of a, a great and obtuse uh, commentary on the nature of a miser. If you're going to wear your flint down to nothing but shavings to the skins off the top of it, it's going to be useless, and you'll feel proud of yourself for saving all the money. Ooh, you didn't have to go buy another flint, but you're not going to get any benefit from it. Um, however, that's the closest I could get to a decent uh, interpretation of the phrase. If you know the history of that, please put it in the comments in the show notes to share with the world. I am fascinated by that because I I grew up hearing the word skin flint. The phrase skin off a of flint or peeling the skin off, skin off a of flint I had never heard before. And I loved, I loved that moment when Margaret was trying to calm her mother down and uh, and talk about Helston and her mom said, Oh, I was horrible. You know, I didn't, I didn't appreciate when I was there. Then finally fessed up to the fact that she was embarrassed by it and was worried that Margaret was going to come home and go, Oh, this miserable little place. It's so provincial and it's so boring and small after Harley Street. And then Margaret says this, those, those lovely little lines about all the clever contrivances at Halston, the, the shelf that had handles on it that you could also use as a tray, a serving tray, and all of these little things. And I was thinking, you know, this is how people survived with big families in little homes, is they had to come up with really clever ways to multitask. And Gaskell just opened up and, and gave us a couple that I thought were so intriguing. And it was lovely. It was this lovely little small home moment. And we don't get many of those in literature. So blessed Elizabeth Gaskell for doing that, because I, I appreciated that part. And then, of course, there's poor dear Frederick and Mrs. Hale being very, very, very sad, as you would imagine, that she will probably die without ever seeing her son again. We don't know what she's dying of. We do know that the doctor was able to communicate it in a couple of sentences. She doesn't appear to have movie-wasting disease, otherwise known as tuberculosis and consumption, but she's clearly got something, and I, I don't know. I don't, is it cancer? Probably. Maybe. I can't think of anything else that would be so immediately recognized as, oh my gosh, my mom is going to die, and that the doctor would say, not that we have a cure, but that there have been marvelous strides in medicine to manage the pain, palliative care. And so that's that's where I started to go, oh, well, maybe, maybe that's cancer. I haven't been able to find any definitive responses from any of the um, literary critics about what it, what it actually is, but that's, that's my best bet. Uh, let me know if you have other thoughts based on the way the doctor described things, because I'm, I'm interested. And there is where I am going to have to leave it this week. I hope you have a great week. I will talk to you soon. You take care of yourself and uh, have a great one. Bye. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or post a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via Stitcher Radio, craftlet.com, or via our Android, our new Windows 8, or iPhone app. You can also use the free Craftlet app 
to access premium subscriber content. Craftlet is and has been made possible by the support of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>